three, two, one. Hello, and thanks for joining us on Kentucky Caliber. This week, I want to do a book review, and it's a very timely book on a, a timely topic. And the book is called The Story of Russia, and it's written by a British uh, historian, Orlando Fidges. I hope I said that correctly. I think it's pronounced Fidges. It's spelled F-I-G-E-S, so I believe that's how it goes. And it's a really good book on the um, not just the history of Russia, but it goes back pretty far all the way to the, the foundational periods of not just the Russian state, but also of Russian culture and language and how those came to be. So it offers a lot, if you're interested in a more detailed look at the, um, the evolution of Russian culture and language and history altogether, um, many of the later chapters, which I'm not going to go into in, in great detail today, uh, but I would recommend it if that's your interest level, then I think those later chapters would be really good to read. But the, what I wanted to start with was really the, the first chapter and the overview really sets up very nicely the arguments that come later. Um, and then the later chapters sort of supply the, the evidence and put you know flesh on the bones, if you will. But there's a lot of important information in, in this book. And, and it can be found elsewhere, but I haven't really found one, uh, a single book that sort of pulls it all together quite the way that uh, the story of Russia does. And so I think that's why it's important. And one of the things that it emphasizes and talks about is the the origins of of Russia itself? You know, I'm in the all the way back to the you know the the ninth century um, when it first began to emerge as a as a culture and a language or as a trading post there near Moscow and even before then. And those found those this type of you know foundational history when we go all the way back um, to the very beginning. And of course, we're talking you know well over a, a thousand years ago. So when you get a look at the foundation of, of history, you sort of gain a better perspective for why things work today, why things happen today, and, and how to understand what we're seeing from, from Russia in 2022. Um, it's, it's helpful. So it really sheds a good light on that. And, of course, the book details some fairly commonly known facts, such as the, um, you know, the Kiev and Rus, which... All, which is claimed as a common ancestry by Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine. And this started in around the 900s, which I guess that's well more than, than a thousand years ago. So I guess that's 10th century. I said 9th earlier. Uh, 900 would be the, the 10th century. But when this area began to develop in, into trading centers, so there's, it's a, there's a network of rivers there which provide access to Europe and and facilitate trade between the uh, Europeans and and folks on the other side of Asia this helped um, those areas grow into trading posts in later cities one of which of course became Moscow which is really central to the development of the Russian state as we know it today and one of the parts that this book focuses on and this is an important point, is one that you won't find in a lot of Soviet history or Russian history books that were written 
in the uh, or during the 20th century. So the czars were overthrown in 1917, and the Soviet Union was established shortly thereafter. I say shortly, there was really a couple of years where there was a lot of chaos and uncertainty, but in a historical sense, shortly thereafter, the Soviet Union came into existence, and so stayed into existence until 1991. So much of the 20th century for Russia was dominated by the Soviet Union and the Soviet system. It wasn't just the personalities of some of its founders, Lenin or its most notable ruler, Stalin. The Soviet system far outlasted both of them and left an indelible impact on Russian culture and history that we still see today. And one of the ways it did that was the state controlled how the narrative of Russian history was written. And so they decided which parts of their history would be focused on, which parts would be minimalized, and which parts would just be left out. And this is a, a good contribution for the story of Russia, the book, um, because it focuses on a period of history that you won't find in most of the, the Soviet-era uh, history textbooks, which includes... Importantly, that includes the ones that Vladimir Putin was raised on. So almost all of the history that, that he grew up uh, being taught or believing in was a product of the Soviet system. And much of that, um, to put it mildly, is very flawed. And some of it's outright um, fabrication, or, or much of it is flawed, and other parts of it only tell very selective truths um, from a certain angle while leaving out the larger context and importance. And I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. So the Mongol rule, which happened at a very early stage in the development of what would become uh, the Russian nation or Russian culture, um, the Rus, including Moscow, was under Mongol control for the better part of three centuries. So you know, roughly 300 years, um, they were under the control of what was called the Golden Horde, which was the, um, the Mongol Empire. And during that time, the Mongols left quite an impression on Russian culture and history, which resonates to this day. And much, Soviet, uh, much of the Soviet history books will, will not acknowledge that or, or flatly deny it. Um, in their version, they'll simply say that the, the Russian... Uh, nation was under the yoke of the Mongols, and that was because of punishment. They believed that, the, or that, that version of history was, well, the Russians were being punished by God for their sins, and once they became, once they returned to the righteous path, or the right path, then the Mongols were defeated, and Russia took its place as a, um, as a great power, not only in Europe, but uh, in the world. But the Mongol rule was significant for a couple of reasons. And, and the book goes into detail on a lot of this and, and provides some, some really compelling evidence to support the claims that are made. Namely, that the, the genesis or the basis for authoritarian rule in Russia, which, by the way, is, is still a popular form of rule. Um, if you ask Americans, they don't like authoritarianism or they have a, a sort of uh, negative, in, a negative uh, understanding of that term. But that's not the case in Russia. In Russia, you'll find uh, audiences or more people that are much more receptive to the idea of authoritarianism because they're more receptive to the idea of authority. And that has to do with the way in which authority is bound up, not just in the leading of the government, but of the church and of the nation and of the people and the culture all ruled into one. And the beginnings of that all happened under Mongol rule. 
So when the Mongol Empire uh, was spreading out across uh, the steppe in Asia, which, by the way, is just a lot of flat uh, land that later armies, including both Napoleon's and Hitler's, would write was appeared to be endless, which it, it, it looks that way because it's, it's, there's so many thousands of miles of it. Um, the Mongols were able to conquer so much because they were very effective at using their cavalry, which at the time was a, a novel. Uh, the way they did it and the skill with which they did it was novel. And so they were able to defeat many um, foot soldiers using mounted cavalry that were highly skilled um, at operating from, from horseback, which is, you know, gives you a, a speed advantage and a firepower advantage over foot soldiers. And so for a long time, their cavalry reigned supreme, and so did their empire. And one of the folks that were under the control of the Mongol Empire was what is today we today call Russia. The trading posts which Moscow began as and, and, and flourished, by the way, under, under Mongol rule, because the Mongols wanted their tribute or their taxes to be paid. And as long as you did that, they weren't too picky about um, the rest of the year, how you spent the rest of your time. They even offered protection to the... Um, the church at the time, which was becoming the, um, which is the legacy from uh, the Byzantine Empire, which would become the Orthodox Church. So in the West, we have, you know, Protestants and Catholics uh, for Christianity. In the East, you have the Orthodox Church, which is what they have in Russia. And that was given uh, protection by the Mongol Empire. And so as a result of that, lots of people uh, began to flock to the church because their property and their, their locations were off-limits for the uh, the cavalry and the soldiers of the Mongol Empire. And so that combined with, with the, uh, the fervent teaching and belief that was native to the region anyway contributed to the, the growth of a lasting imprint of Orthodox Christianity onto Russian culture, which survives to this day. And we see that in the form of the current patriarch, Kirill, who's been an avid and vocal supporter of Vladimir Putin and the Russian state and has even chimed in uh, a couple of times with um, commentary that if you fight in Ukraine, um, all your sins will be forgiven and you'll go straight to heaven. So it's a, that kind of thing is a little bit that's similar to what we have seen from the, uh, the Ayatollah in Iran who offered plastic keys to, uh, to the kingdom of heaven to soldiers uh, during the Iran-Iraq war in the 80s. Um, I don't think they've handed out any keys or anything like that, but just to hear that kind of statement coming from the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church um, echoes um, the type of religious and um, religious authority and direction given to the state and to the conquest of the state um, that we've seen in other places. But it wasn't just the, the growth of the, uh, the Orthodox Church that flourished during the, the time of Mongol rule. It was also the growth of authoritarian rule by administrators of the local uh, government or the local uh, authorities at the time. The Mongols had a sort of shrewd strategy when it came to how they managed their empire, as vast as it was. First, they had a, a unparalleled um, transportation system by which messengers could deliver um, messages to the corners of the empire by horseback in just a few days. So they had a really good road system with really highly trained riders with fresh horses at each station. And so they could get word to the distant corners of their empire really quickly. And that helped them maintain control. And they could also receive information about what was going on there pretty quickly. And so one of the things they like to do is to play rivals off against each other. So if there were several different 
cities or, or, or trading posts or different groups of people under their control, as was the case uh, in what is today uh, Russia. There was Moscow, which was growing. There was Lithuanians, which were that was growing. There was the, uh, the Polish influence, which was growing. They tended to play those groups against each other. And, and the way they did it was they would, they would choose the second strongest of the group or in their judgment who was the second strongest of the, of the, of the factions, and they would back them just to the point where they could keep the, the largest faction from gaining power. And the real objective was to prevent any of the factions from being able to challenge Mongol rule itself. And they were, and they were very effective at doing that. So as long as they were receiving their tributes and their, their taxes were being paid and Mongol rule was being um, obeyed and fealty was being sworn to the Khan, they didn't really care um, about if the groups under their control fought each other or killed each other. Um, they said, okay, fine, you know, whatever. We're still getting our taxes. We still have our tributes. You're still under the control of the Khan. So, you know, if you guys out here in the distant corners of the empire have, have a beef with each other, well, yeah, that's your problem. You know, as long as it doesn't interfere with taxes, long as it doesn't uh, interfere with your loyalty to the to the leader we don't care uh, and so they kept doing that for a long time and that had had some lasting consequences it, it helped sow the seeds of um, conflict against of groups that even uh, late in later centuries would continue to battle for control of territory and for control of trade and then later on in the 20th century just for control of, of land and um, which nation was going to exert sovereignty over the um, that portion of land in Eurasia? You know, we call it Europe Asia. I mean, they're connected by a land. They're connected by land. So really, Eurasia is one continent. Uh, I'd have really understood why we we chose to refer to Europe as a continent and Asia as a separate continent. Um, but the first the first chapter is it walks you through this. Um, how the Mongols ruled and how they took took over and how their rule left an impression on the people there. And that authoritarian rule was one of those legacies um, because it was effective and it worked. And so when you had a, a ruler who could organize their forces very quickly and administrate things effectively, that's how you got things done. That's how you maintained the peace. That's how you maintained order. And so over time, that became the standard for effective governance and effective rule uh, in Russia. What is Russia today? The word uh, Tsar is essentially the Russian word for the Mongol Khan, which refers to the single ruler. So while they wanted to have their own Russian ruler over their territories, they wanted him to rule in a manner that the Khan himself of, Mong of the Mongol Empire would certainly have understood. So they didn't want Mongol rule, but they wanted the same type of authority that the Mongols used to rule their empire. They just wanted it done with uh, a Russian ruler. And that indeed uh, eventually happened when the Mongols were finally defeated and the first of the czars became, became to power. They were quick to capitalize on that historical and cultural legacy by by immediately claiming that they were the new ruler and that their rule had to be obeyed and that all of the, the supporting nobles and elites all depended on the ruler for power. And they were also an instrument of the Almighty. So there was a, a, a long fusion between the Russian leaders of the, of the czars and of the Orthodox Christian Church. And that also left a lasting impression, uh, which echoes through the centuries down to today, 
when we have such a close um, alliance between the leader of the Russian government, Vladimir Putin, and the patriarch of the Orthodox Russian Church, Kirill. We've seen that uh, continue to play out today. They support each other, and that is the legacy of the time uh, from Mongol rule until the, the present day. Now, of course, when the czars were overthrown because they became corrupt and their rule became ineffective and they weren't able to keep the peace in such a vast land um, which Russia covers and many of the peoples that were under Russian rule you know, saw their opportunity and wanted to escape from that rule or outright declare their own independence as, as Ukraine uh, is doing today by resisting the Russian invasion, which is why when uh, this all started in 2013 in Ukraine, um, the same memory of the past that the Russians had when groups like Ukraine want independence, that's a threat to Russian rule and to the, uh, to the overall Russian nation, which is, and that's the way that I think Based on his behavior, it appears that that's the way Russian President Putin has interpreted that, that he is very much a product of the history of Russia and that they have to rule with a firm hand and sort of uh, an iron fist, if you will, in order to keep not just law and order, but to keep the, the Russian people and the Russian nation together. And so this is sort of what they see as their, their holy mission. And it should be seen that way. Um, that's also a, a very old um, an old belief that Russia has a holy mission. Um, it's been referred to as the third Rome or, or the successor to the Byzantine empire. And all that means is that the leaders of, of Russia, including the czars and of the Orthodox church, see it as their mission to protect Christianity, their, their version of it. And also at the same time, expand uh, Russian rule over their neighbors which serves a practical function, okay, so they get security, but they also believe, uh, or many do, that they have a, a, just a holier mission to rule, that they are, are superior and that everyone else is inferior or that everyone else should submit to Russian rule because of their, of their past history of ruling over those areas under the czars and later under the Soviets. And so the book does a really nice job of fleshing all of that out. Um, that, those, those are all, you know, conceptual type of arguments, but the, the individual uh, Fidges walks you through the chronology and walks you through the individual steps that the regions underwent from the time of, of the Mongol invasion in the 1200s to the, uh, uh, to the defeat of the Mongols and the uh, installation of the czars around 15 or 1600, and then with the, the collapse of the czars and the rise of the Soviet all the way up to uh, where we are today with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So I, I think it's it's a really nice um, historical work. And, and as he mentions here, uh, this is somewhere in uh, the, the end of the, the first chapter, but the, and I, I think I mentioned this earlier, the elite and the rulers all depended on the czar for power. They were they were totally dependent on his will. And so Fidges sees the, the Putin oligarchs in the same way as being totally dependent on his will. I'm not 100% sure that's actually the case. I think that's what, uh, Putin is trying to accomplish. It's not clear to me that the the wealthy elite in Russia really are completely dependent on his will. They certainly rely on his generosity and his good nature in order to maintain their own wealth and their own positions in at the top of uh, Russian society. But I don't know that they're um, completely dependent on his will. Anyway, so I think that's really um, 
that's something that you won't find in the history or the version of history that was presented by, by President Putin himself, who prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine published a rather lengthy um, essay on the history of Russia and Ukraine. I think I, I mentioned this in, in some previous episodes, but in that he talked about the fact that, that in his mind, Ukraine and, and uh, Russia have always been one people and that there has never been an independent Ukraine. There's never been a separate uh, Ukrainian people, which of course is not really true uh, when you look at the actual history of it. it. It's true if you look at the Soviet version of Russian history, which told it in such a way so that it appeared that there has never been uh, an independent or, or a distinct Ukrainian language and culture, but there has been. And the evidence of that um, is rather broad and it exists. Uh, it's easily accessible to those who aren't under the control of the Soviet style um, teaching of history. And, and so we found today when the Russian forces arrived in Ukraine, if they actually expected folks to greet them uh, with open arms, that quite obviously has not happened. And the reason it's not happened is because the Ukrainians do consider themselves to be an independent nation, a distinct people. And that is a very elegant and forceful proof that the version of history that Mr. Putin has been uh, sharing and, and writing and speaking about is simply not true. And so there's some warnings in there, I think, for the rest of the world. Um, when, you, when you look, when you come up with a version of history that's simply not in touch with reality and you decide to base policies on that, it's going to lead you to uh, it can lead you to disasters like the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine has turned out to be. It's certainly an, a disaster for the Ukrainian people. It remains to be seen how much of a disaster it will be for Russia. Um, you know, conflict zones are very fluid and chaotic places, and it's it is difficult to get reliable, credible information. And so, seeing the real picture of what's happening in Ukraine today is difficult and that's complicated by the um, the constant drumbeat of propaganda from everyone that's involved uh, or everyone that has an opinion on it and so trying to sort through all of that and, and get a, a genuine picture of what's happening on the ground it, it can be very difficult and I think that's the case right now it's hard to say really what the situation is the what it appears to be happening is the Ukrainian forces appear to be retaking some of the territory that Russia took in the initial invasion. And I think, as I mentioned last week, you know, territory can, can change places a bunch of times, right? I mean, you can, you can have land that's captured today, but you can't hold it. And then it's, um, it's in somebody else's hand the next day. And I, you, sorry, if you hear the click in, in the background, that's just me. I'm click. I've got the, uh, the story of Russia, the book here open on my Kindle and I'm, I'm looking back and um, I w there's a couple of highlighted portions that I wanted to, to see if I could emphasize. I'm trying to find them here in my notes. And, uh, yeah, so here's, here's one of them, uh, and, I, and I think I mentioned this before. Um, the Mongol occupation is a key turning point in Russian history. It set Russia on a path to autocracy, serfdom, and imperial expansion into Asia. So I probably should have led with that. Uh, sorry, <laughs> but let, let me unpack that just a little bit because it, it's, I sort of already talked about all of it. But so I mentioned the autocracy part. That's the single ruler, whether it's the czar or the Soviet or now Putin, um, in control of the church and the government. The serfdom part means that the folks underneath them 
are locked into a, a position in life. So if you happen to be born poor or you're just part of the apparatus, um, that's that's your station in life and you, you shouldn't question it or challenge it. And, and that exists to serve the autocracy. And then, of course, the imperial expansion into Asia, which we've seen Russia do in Ossetia and Georgia, which we've seen them do in Chechnya, and now which we've seen them do in Ukraine, is a necessary part in the Russian mind to secure their own uh, frontier or their own borders. But it's also bound up with a, a holy mission to rule as much of Asia as possible. And, and that, as I mentioned earlier, it goes back to uh, earlier portions of uh, Russian history. I think it's just really, it's really fascinating that you could have a nation that, you know, that, that's been around as long as, as the Russian people have. And, and let's face it, you know, this, we're talking close to an, uh, well over a millennium. Uh, and yet the century of Soviet rule and Soviet-controlled historical writings and teaching has grossly distorted the genuine past of the Russian people and the Russian nation so that many people today who still live under that same system don't really have a good familiarity with their own past or with their own history. And that's kind of a scary thing if you think about it. Um, it's a scary thing that you could live in a nation as old as Russia and not know or not be allowed to know the real history behind it. And that's scary. It's, it's scary that a government can come to power and do that. And then it could simply take control of the past and either ban or destroy any books that it didn't want people to read and then leave in this place only books that told the version of the past that it believed was correct, even though it was uh, extremely flawed. Uh, as I mentioned, you won't find references to the Mongol rule in most of your Soviet histories. You won't find acknowledgement of the role that that rule played in the development of Russia's culture and government in the Soviet history books. You won't find that there. And so you, you have a break, if you will, from the past. Uh, and part of, the, part of the reason why you're seeing Russia undertake a disastrous invasion, it's not the only reason, I'm not saying it is, but part of the reason why is that they've had a break with the past. And so when we see these types of uh, efforts popping up in other places, um, it's not just Russia. Uh, there's a similar phenomenon going on in India right now where the BJP, which is the ruling party, is undertaking a vast project to rewrite India's history such that their own political agenda is substantiated and the actual course of Indian, India's past and India's history is erased. So it's not just in Russia. This is taking place in other places, too. And, and India is just one example. Um, to a lesser extent, we've seen this pop up here in the United States, and, and there's still an ongoing arguments over what should be taught to students. Um, but there's no effort in the United States that comes even close to the Soviet level of control of the past um, that took place in Russia. That has not happened in the United States although there have been some state legislators, in my view, which have gone too far in advocating that they should be allowed to decide what constitutes, quote, patriotic history, uh, which is a phrase that Stalin would have loved and, uh, and I think actually used uh, a number of times to, do, to rewrite their own past such that it suited their political agenda and to leave out the bad parts and to only talk about the parts that are deemed patriotic by the current ruling um, government. 
well, that's 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 terrible. That's a bad thing for the country. Um, you have to learn about your past, good, bad, and ugly. So all the parts of it have to be looked at. It have to be understood. It have to be remembered, or you don't really have a true picture of what's going on. So anyway, and the book wraps up with uh, what's going on in uh, the modern day. So with your your current um, um, the current situation and speculates on you know what's gonna what's gonna be the future and you know there's some interesting parts about that uh, that we should think about um, as as uh, Orlando Fidges mentions here in the end of his book I'll just skip to the end quote uh, you know twice in the 20th century in 1917 and 1991 the autocratic state in Russia broke down only to be reborn in a different form and so today when we see the Russian invasion of Ukraine um, we have to ask ourselves, if it fails, uh, I'm not saying that I know that for a fact that it will fail, I don't know that, but if it does fail, what will be the consequences for the Russian government? Um, if we remember our, our history from the First World War, uh, a defeat, a foreign military defeat, contributed mightily to the overthrow of the Tsars and to the birth of the Soviet Union, which was something much worse. So if the Ukrainian defeat were to lead to the collapse of the Putin regime, I'm not 100% sure that's a cause for celebration uh, because we don't know what would replace it. And, and history tells us that it could very well be something worse. So we don't want to see that happen. So I would caution everyone who's cheering for the demise of the Putin regime, let's, uh, let's think about what might replace it and might it not be something that's uh, even worse. Um, that remains to be seen. But anyway, I would highly recommend uh, The Story of Russia by Orlando Fidges. That's the, um, the ideas and the concepts that I've, I've talked about in the last half hour have been uh, drawn straight from the writings that, uh, that he has in this book called The Story of Russia. It's available on Kindle. You can get a hard copy of it. Um, I would highly recommend it. It's a good read. It's not dense. It isn't written for academics or, or scholars, so it doesn't have a lot of jargon or... Um, what you would call fancy language. It's very straightforward. Um, it's very easy to read. So you don't have to be a trained historian to to read and appreciate the information that this book provides and the perspective that it provides. I think that's that's critical. Um, it's critical that the we understand the power of history is that it gives us the ability to see current events in a new light and with a better perspective. And so I think this book does that. And it helps, under, helps us understand the forces that are at work that led to the, the Ukrainian invasion of, or the, rather, sorry, the, uh, the Russian, sorry about that, the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, in 2022 so that we can uh, understand it in, in more detail and in more depth. Because you can't hope to respond to anything intelligently if you don't understand what's going on. And I think this book contributes uh, a, a good part to our understanding of the situation there. So check it out if you want, read it. I enjoyed reading it. And uh, thank everybody for listening. Have a great day. Take care.